Welcome to a Longer Table podcast, a space for real and sometimes hard conversations that will often challenge your perspective and always empower you to pull up more seats around your own table. I'm your host, Amanda Carpenter. Let's dive in. January is National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month, so I'm excited to introduce you to Nate Knapper, the founder of The Joseph Project, which is a nonprofit based in Detroit who helps victims of sex trafficking with pro bono legal counsel. Nate is a federal law enforcement officer who worked the anti-trafficking task force and witnessed firsthand how many victims of sex trafficking face huge legal battles. He started his nonprofit, The Joseph Project, to match lawyers who are willing to work pro bono with survivors needing legal counsel. Nate, welcome to a Longer Table podcast. Amanda, great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I am so excited for this conversation. You have seen human trafficking up close. Like this is very real to you. It's not just like for some of us, uh, I'll just speak for myself, like a movie concept where it feels very distant and far away. Is human trafficking synonymous with sex trafficking or is there a difference? Sure. Yeah, I appreciate the question. And, uh, you know, so I would say that sex trafficking is a type of human trafficking. So just to kind of roll things back and, and set the context or give a definition of what human trafficking is, I understand trafficking to be the commercial exploitation of another person for sex or labor services through force, fraud, or coercion. So within that definition, you have both sex and labor trafficking. A lot of times when people think of trafficking, they think sex trafficking, and that is a very prevalent form of exploitation in our culture. A lot of times it takes the form of prostitution by means of force or drug-based coercion, but it doesn't have to. But sex trafficking is just one form of exploitation. Under the broader umbrella, you also have something that many people refer to as labor trafficking. And that could be understood as a domestic servitude type of situation, for example, where an individual would be, say, on a, on a farm or an agricultural setting or in a massage parlor or a hotel or a restaurant, and they're being forced to render services of some kind for which they themselves are not being compensated, but for which an embedded third party is profiting. So uh, there is a distinction between sex and labor trafficking, but they both fall under the broader umbrella of what is known as human trafficking. Wow. Yeah. That is, yeah. I mean, this is already like, uh, I think I'm going to be in like a shock mode most of this conversation, but that is so helpful. Thank you. What, um, what's the FBI's role in fighting human trafficking? Sure. So, you know, the, the FBI is, of course, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And uh, we fall under the broader umbrella of what we would call the DOJ or the Department of Justice. And so, you know, the FBI is an investigative outfit. And so their role in the fight against human trafficking is to investigate uh, trafficking violations. Human trafficking is, of course, a violation of the federal laws. It's also a violation of state law. But uh, but we get involved when when federal laws are violated. And so, you know, within that context, the FBI uh, fights human trafficking primarily by conducting a variety of operations, whether undercover or overt, to uh, forestall trafficking situations that may occur out there in the broader culture. So whether that means uh, entering into a situation where somebody is being exploited in in a vehicle or a private residence or a hotel, wherever somebody is being trafficked. 
we would enter into that situation to to break up that sex for money arrangement if it's a sex trafficking arrangement if it's labor trafficking of course we would address that appropriately as well but it's an investigative role where we are breaking up a trafficking situation collecting evidence related to that situation and then passing it off to the u.s attorney's office so that an assistant united states attorney could take a look at the evidence and potentially prosecute the case yeah. Yeah. This, this feels like almost like its own underground world. And, and maybe that's my na- naivety and, and like just my lack of awareness, but I mean, this is happening all around us. This is like not uncommon. It's not uncommon. You know, trafficking has often been described as a crime that is hidden in plain sight. And I think it becomes easier to understand the crime if you have a definition of it and you know some of the red flags to look for. So I assume we're going to we're going to talk about some of those. Yes. You know, it is something that that if you know what you're looking for, it is a little bit easier to spot. But yes, it is happening all around us from the inner cities to the suburbs and everywhere in between. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's go there for a minute, you know, cause some of us like myself feel really far from trafficking in general, but, but shed some light on the reality. Like how common and close is this happening to most of us every day? And where do traffickers find their victims? I don't know if that's the right language. Who, who are these people targeting? Sure. So, you know, let me start by addressing a, a common misconception that's sort of, you know, inherent there within the question that you've asked. So, you know, I think that there's still a pervasive tendency for people to think, you know, trafficking is something that happens over there. That's not something that happens in the cities and towns where I live. And the reality is that that's just not the case. As I mentioned, it happens uh, in downtown cities. It happens in more affluent suburbs. It happens in every kind of place. And you mentioned, you know, the type of people that are potentially victimized. Uh, My experience has been that vulnerability leads to victimization. Again, if I could address a misconception, I think that many people tend to think that trafficking occurs or originates when an individual is physically snatched or kidnapped, you might say, from one location, and then they're moved to another location. That can happen, it does and has happened, but it's not the most common form of exploitation that we see. Rather, what is far more common is a situation where an individual, a potential victim, is approached and groomed online, whether that's on a website, or on a social media application, something that can all be facilitated through a cell phone. The exploiter will ingratiate him or herself to that individual, compliments and flattery are often inherent in this grooming process. And then from there, it would devolve into an in-person situation where the potential victim is ultimately exploited, often by means of coercion through drug use. Wow. And when I think of vulnerable people, I think of people who live in poverty and maybe are are, uh, living in survival mode. So they might be an easier target or people who uh, children, I mean, young people. Is that a thing? It is a thing. So, you know, when we talk about vulnerability, there are certain factors to watch out for that that really are indicative of of whether or not a, a person would would be vulnerable to trafficking. Right. So within those factors, you have very common ones like poverty like broken homes. I mentioned drug use before. That is intricately tied to domestic US-based human trafficking. You know, I think a lot of times people would find it incredulous that a family member, for example, could traffic another family member. Hmm. But it does happen, uh, and I have seen it. 
And it becomes easier to understand if you understand trafficking as a commercial transaction where if the requisite amount of desperation is there, where the family feels that they have no other choice but to earn a dollar some way, they would be willing, if they're desperate enough, to sell, for example, a member of their own family to make ends meet. And I have seen that occur. Wow. So you've seen a lot of things because you've been working in federal law enforcement. And and I want to know how exactly your work in federal law enforcement led you to start the Joseph Project. And I would love for you to share the story behind the name for this organization. Sure. So that's going to require a quick story. You got time for a story? We've got time. We've got time for all the stories at our table. Awesome. Yes. A longer table. I love it. So, uh, you know, in terms of how my work ties in, um, so, you know, I graduated from the FBI Academy at Quantico in early 2017. And shortly after that, I I found myself at a church service. I had been assigned to the uh, human trafficking squad in Detroit. And I went to church one week as, as is usually my, my way. And, um, you know, it's a church of thousands of people and I'm just sitting somewhere toward the back. And um, I, I wasn't expecting this, but the pastor uh, about midway through the service brought up a, a young lady uh, named Delin. And Delin shared a, a pretty horrific story of uh, almost 10 years of being trafficked on the streets of Detroit. And of all the people that were sitting in the auditorium that day, my ears sort of pricked. And I thought, you know, I'm uniquely positioned to help this woman, given the role that I have within federal law enforcement. And so I I went up to her after the service concluded and I introduced myself. And uh, that was the beginning of a friendship that continues on to this day. But uh, along the way, what I would learn from Delin is that uh, not only was she trafficked, but there was an occasion where uh, one of her exploiters very viciously assaulted her. And she was stabbed you know, nine times, her jaw was broken. They attempted to drown her in a bathtub and then they discussed burning her alive. It's unbelievable. I mean, you wouldn't believe uh, the exploitation that she was subjected to. Mm. But, you know, they eventually conclude that she's going to die in that condition if they don't bring her to a hospital. And so they load her up into the car and they dump her at the doorstep of a local hospital and they drive away. Now, fortunately, Delyn recovers from her injuries and and she's still with us today and we're very grateful for that but what you don't really think about in the situation is the fact that the hospital then turns around and they charge her right for the the medical bills that are associated with her treatment and delin doesn't know anything about this you know she's just she's been injured and she's been treated and she recovers and she leaves but fast forward a couple of years later and the hospital starts coordinating with a collection agency, and they sue Delin to obtain the compensation related to the treatment that they rendered. And so, you know, Delin comes to me, and uh, she describes this situation, and she's very upset by it, as you might expect. I mean, imagine being trafficked, physically assaulted, and then sued for the treatment you received pursuant to your assault. Mm-hmm. So this is where Delin finds herself. And she comes to me and, uh, you know, you take a look at that situation as a lawyer and you say, Delyn, you really need legal counsel. And so what we did is we connected her with a couple of pro bono attorneys who were willing to resolve that debt situation free of charge. They coordinated with Delyn, the collection agency, the hospital, and everybody was appropriately compensated. And the state even uh, had a role within a victim compensation fund that they uh, they rendered funds to to help out as well. So the situation was resolved, 
But as a lawyer, you look at that and you say, well, if if Delin has those kinds of legal needs pursuant to her trafficking, then I suspect that many, many other survivors have similar needs. And that was the reason why we incorporated the Joseph Project was to render pro bono legal aid to victims of human trafficking wherever they can be found. Wow. Yeah. That's such a powerful story. And I love that you just happened to be in church that day. You just happened to hear her story. You happened to connect with her and it led to all this other stuff. So out of this kind of organic experience that clearly was like God ordained, or some may say God ordained, you started the Joseph Project. Why did you choose the name Joseph for the organization? Absolutely. Well, let me just begin by saying I would say that it's God ordained. Uh, you know, I'm a believer, and uh, you know, when you talk about uh, belief or faith, you know, for me, uh, that that starts with the scriptures. And you know, when you when you think about the biblical story of Joseph, this is somebody whose narrative is found in the book of Genesis, and uh, it begins in chapter 37. It goes through 50, so it goes through the very end of the book. And, you know, it's interesting because I think that we understand Joseph's story on some level, whether you're a believer or you're not, because of the Andrew Lloyd Webber production, right? Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. This is, this has kind of put the story on the cultural radar screen, whether you're a believer or not. But what I think is often lost on us or something that, you know, maybe people don't even consider is the fact that Joseph was by definition, a human trafficking survivor. And he was history's earliest recorded example. So if you know the story, he is trafficked or sold into Egyptian slavery by his own brothers. So he's commercially exploited for labor services through force. But what I love is that Joseph doesn't remain a slave because he stays in faith, because he perseveres. He goes through many, many hardships, but he eventually finds himself second in command of the entire nation of Egypt by the Pharaoh's order. And so what we say is that Joseph made a transition from exploitation to empowerment. And that's the same sort of transition that we want to facilitate for every survivor of trafficking that we serve. So we call it the Joseph Project in his honor. Yeah, I love that. And that's so cool because, yeah, as someone who does read the Bible and knows quite a few stories, I would have never like associated Joseph as the first um, person recorded in history to have experienced trafficking. But you're you're so spot on. That's such a cool connection. And I love it. It makes sense that you would name your organization that. Um, I, I want to ask you if you feel like trafficking cases in your experience working again with the FBI and now with, you know, your nonprofit, you, you have all this exposure to it. Has, has trafficking increased and gotten worse over the years? Or is it just that we have greater awareness of it because of like things like social media? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I think it could be a combination of both. You know, so I guess to preface the answer, you know, a good gauge of that is always to look at the numbers, right? And so, you know, the best data set of which I'm aware is the uh, statistics that come from the National Human Trafficking Hotline, which, you know, are posted online. And they break it down by state and they also break it down nationally. And so, you know, I guess taking a look at those numbers, you can see trends through the years, right? And those numbers are not perfect. They only provide a snapshot, of course, of what's really going on, but they do provide some insight into what's really happening. And both in Michigan and nationally, what you tend to see is this year over year increase in the amount of cases. And I think there was only one year in Michigan where the numbers dipped only slightly, but that mm -hmm. was an anomaly. Other than that, they go up and up and up. 
And I think the the awareness is rising along with that. Why do you think the numbers are increasing? What do you attribute that to? Or, or does anyone have any idea? Well, you know, I think that when public education increases, so when, when people start to understand it more, I think that there's more reporting. And I also think that uh, law enforcement uh, through the years uh, has made it more of a priority and a focus. Uh, so those are at least uh, a couple of reasons. But I also think that it could be that uh, vulnerability is on the rise, especially mm. in a time of COVID. You know, when you have desperation and uh, broken homes, homelessness, drug addiction proliferating, isolation, loneliness, social detachment. Uh, these are all things that can contribute to, uh, to people um, being exploited, which is a shame. Yeah. Yeah. You alluded to this a little bit ago about the trafficker could be a stranger. It could be someone that the person knows and trusts. What is it usually? And what are some of the most common red flags of trafficking? Like what should people be looking for or report if they see it? Sure. So, you know, as I mentioned before, it, it could be a family member. Oftentimes, uh, in my experience, it starts as, uh, I guess I would call it a relationship, right? Or the beginning of a relationship where somebody, again, is trying to ingratiate themselves to another person to begin a relationship with the ultimate end that they would be exploited. So, you know, it's a it's a good combination of, of family members and uh, people who you might categorized as a stranger who then, you know, becomes an acquaintance and then a friend and then even potentially uh, what people might say is, is somebody that they love. Uh, but with red flags, you know, I think that context is important. So in terms of uh, identifying it, let's, let's take the context of, let's say, a high schooler or a college student where you're in a, a classroom setting with a peer. Perhaps as a student, you have a peer of yours and uh, maybe they're, they're showing up sporadically to class. Maybe their attendance is somewhat spotty. Maybe when they show up, their appearance is disheveled. Maybe when they leave campus, they're leaving with individuals that you don't really recognize and who uh, appear to be exerting certain levels of control over them. Hmm. That context and those observations might cause you to look deeper into the situation and to report that to an authority, whether that's somebody at the school or local police or somebody in a position to help, because those are oddities uh, that I think are worth pointing out. And a lot of times it's good to pay attention to your internal intuition about those things. Yeah. I always say that I feel like our intuition is God's gift to us. Like it's the Holy Spirit guiding us. And so it sounds like there's an element of just common sense and basic stand up for, you know, each other. If you see things that feel off or seem off, you know, to speak up and to, yeah, to just say something, uh, better to be safe than sorry, I suppose. Now you've helped so many survivors over the last few years. I, I mean, can you maybe just share one more story? I know you shared a little bit about um, your friend who kind of started this whole thing that led you to start the Joseph Project, but can you give us another story about a survivor that you've gotten to work with and help? Absolutely. My privilege to do so. And, you know, I, I really do appreciate the opportunity to share stories of survivors because one of the primary goals of Joseph Project, in my view, is to offer survivors of trafficking a voice. I feel that so often they go unheard. And our role is to help give them a megaphone, to give them a voice. And so it's my privilege to do so. And I mentioned Dylan, you know, that's a great story that, of course, is near and dear to us because of the founding of the organization. But, you know, when I think of a survivor who uh, it's my privilege to give her a voice, 
it's somebody uh, by the name of Hana. And, you know, just to frame up Hana's story, um, Hana is from a, a very affluent Detroit area suburb. And so, you know, it cuts against the misconception that it, it comes from the inner cities or it's intricately tied to things like poverty. It can be, but it doesn't have to. Hana was a top student in high school and, and during her first year of college. Uh, she was on a great educational track, uh, perhaps wrestling with some anxiety, uh, started to take some medications to deal with her anxiety. Unfortunately, it devolved into an addiction that led her to, to go in and out of rehab for a period of her life. Unfortunately, when she exited one of those rehab facilities on one occasion, she and a friend were identified by a local exploiter in the Ann Arbor area of Michigan, which is, of course, the backyard of the University of Michigan, very, very popular area of our state. And, you know, they, they lured her in with false promises of employment. And then, you know, they offered her drugs. So it was a form of drug-based coercion where they were perpetuating an addiction with which she was wrestling. So what they do is they take her to a local hotel room where they uh, continue to perpetuate the drug addiction. They get her uh, wasted on alcohol. And then unbeknownst to her, they take photos of her and they begin to post advertisements on the internet. And so, you know, without her knowledge, there are men showing up at the hotel room and she's exploited over and over and over again for about a week's time. Now, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I was just curious, like, is she conscious? Is she so like high and um, uh, incoherent because of drugs and alcohol for this week's time that they're just these these people are using her to make money? They're profiting off of her and her body. And, and I mean, it just it sounds horrific. I'm trying to wrap my brain around this. It's it's so horrific. And if you listen to Hannah's version of events, which I believe, you know, they they had her inebriated. Right. And and of course, the, the drug addiction that she was struggling with was was continuing on inside the hotel room. They had the substances that she was addicted to. And so, you know, they continued to feed her drugs. And so, you know, she's she sold over and over. And fortunately, thank God, her, her own mother, who is extremely courageous, uh, shows up and, and pulls her out of that situation uh, when Hana sees an opportunity to place a phone call outside the company of, of the exploiters. So her mother pulls her out. But imagine this. So you're fresh out of that situation. And what happens next is that Hana is then charged with prostitution related to the circumstances of this trafficking. And that is a charge that she's convicted for. And it follows her on her record. And it's a degrading label that she didn't deserve, but it's preventing her from certain employment prospects and it's affecting her self-esteem, all the rest. And so, you know, she sees the Joseph Project through a local news story that was done about the organization, just somewhat by chance. And she reaches out to us cold through the website and she writes us an email and she says, I need some help. And so we took a look at the situation, understood all the facts, and we connected her with a criminal defense lawyer who represented her in a fantastic way, went to court on her behalf, prepared an expungement application, and fought to ultimately expunge or set aside that charge from off of Hana's record. And today, she is a beautiful mother of a young child. She is uh, a realtor uh, selling homes local to the area and doing so much better, uh, even mentally, uh, with that charge off of her record. And uh, the judge was very proud of her as well. And that was a big victory for us. And we, we so appreciate Hannah. 
Yeah. Yeah. That is, man, just such a story of redemption and resilience and how beautiful that the Joseph Project was able to help when it came to the legal side of things where where that was possibly going to cost her opportunities in the future. And, and if I may just add, so the story is actually in the process of getting much larger because, you know, with, with the erasing of that charge off of her record, what's now happened is certain state lawmakers here in the state of Michigan have invited us to the Michigan Capitol in just a few days where we will speak to a committee to support uh, the expansion of certain expungement laws that would help survivors across the state of Michigan. So the story is in the process of getting much, much larger. Wow. That is so cool. I mean, you've alluded to this a little bit, but why is pro bono legal work so essential for survivors of trafficking? I mean, I think I have some ideas, but uh, maybe if there's any other touch points that you want to share with us. Absolutely. Well, you know, what we say is that when a survivor leaves the circumstances of their exploitation, so, you know, they're, they're freed or they're liberated from the immediate danger of that trafficking. What people don't realize is that so oftentimes it's at that point that their problems are just beginning, right? So your exploitation may be over, but your social reintegration efforts are just beginning. And inherent in those efforts, uh, you have legal collateral damage that very often has to be addressed in order for somebody to move into another level of freedom. And those are things like you know, criminal record expungements like we've talked about, family law challenges, immigration obstacles often pop up. But these are the issues that hold people back. And the reason why pro bono legal services are so important is because it brings a person to a new level of freedom that they wouldn't experience if they didn't have the skilled counsel to overcome those challenges. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's beautiful and I haven't heard of anything else like it which is which is just phenomenal that you're able to take what you did in your, you know, law enforcement work and and provide this nonprofit and I love that it it's uh tied to your beliefs as as a Christ follower. Um I'm curious if someone is being trafficked and they're listening to this right now, what should they do? Yeah, perhaps the most important question of all, right? So if you're a survivor or, or, or currently in the process of being victimized, uh, don't lose hope, uh, number one. Uh, maintain hope, stay in faith, persevere. Uh, but I think that um, your first priority needs to be to get out of the immediate danger that you're in. Uh, and really, I think that's most appropriately done by reaching out to law enforcement. So uh, this is not you know, this is nothing magical, but 911, if you're in imminent danger, 911 is a perfect place to start. You can call the local police in whatever city you happen to be in. Obviously, you can let the FBI know as well, wherever you are, uh, you can make those calls. And I would encourage that person to do so. Everything else that you need in terms of physical needs or drug rehabilitation or legal, that can be addressed later. But if you're a survivor, you've got to get out of your immediate danger. And that starts with law enforcement. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely wanted to include that because you don't want to assume that, you know, anyone who's listening to podcasts isn't being trafficked. I mean, that's just, you've made it very clear that this is happening. Um, Probably 
more than we realize. And I, and I don't want to perpetuate fear either. So I'm curious, what can people listening do to protect themselves, their loved ones, um, aside from just reporting things that feel off or seem off? Are there any other measures we can take, especially for those of us listening who have kids who yeah, are online and how do we protect them? And oh, it's just, yeah, any tips? Absolutely. Well, you, you mentioned uh, online and that is really, really where I would camp out because if you're a parent, I mean, you talked about being a parent of children, especially younger children. Um, in my view, especially if you're footing the bill, you are entitled to know what those children are doing on their cell phones if you choose to give them one at all. If you give them a phone, you're entitled to know what they're doing on it if you pay the bill. And so because so much of exploitation originates online, there are so many avenues by which you can connect with strangers that you don't know, somebody who you've never met in person. I really, really as a parent would strongly caution and recommend that you stay very, very plugged in to the social media activities of your child and you would have conversations with them. You are entitled to. It may feel awkward. Uh, they may push back and say, well, you know, this is my private world. Well, I mean, you can have a private world, I suppose, but like I'm paying the cell phone bill. So let's talk about the cell phone, you know? Yeah. 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 No, it's so good. It's so true. And I, I mean, I'm curious too, just, this just popped in my head while we were chatting, like are, are women and girls more likely to be trafficked? Are we seen as more vulnerable or more valuable in the quote unquote trafficking world? Well, of course, you know, we do acknowledge that that both male and female individuals are trafficked. But, you know, that being said, uh, the majority are female. And I think especially when you take a look at uh, the type of trafficking, that is relevant to the answer as well. So, you know, take sex trafficking. I think that within that particular umbrella of trafficking, you're going to see more females exploited uh, just because of the nature of, of, of what it is and, and human proclivities. I mean, I, the numbers bear that out. If you have a form of labor exploitation, perhaps you're going to see more males, and, and I and I have seen more males in that line of exploitation. But overwhelmingly, in the sex trafficking arena, especially domestically, you're going to see female victims. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, well, how else? Um, we've talked a little bit about like things to look out for, how to handle it if we feel like something's off, um, ways that we can help protect people we love and kind of monitoring our children's online, you know, use of social media, things like that. But like, how else can people support your mission and the work that you're doing to help those who are coming out of trafficking, um, getting back on their feet? What can we do to support the mission of the Joseph Project and just to be uh, people who really help prevent and, and bring to an end trafficking that's happening possibly in our local communities? Absolutely. I appreciate that question. And, you know, so the Joseph Project, you think of the premise of offering pro bono legal. Uh, I think that if you're an attorney who's listening or, you know, you have an attorney in your sphere of influence, uh, a beautiful way to help would be just to reach out to us through the website, josephproject.com, super simple. And uh, just let us know who you are. And um, you know, the goal ultimately is to build out a nationwide legal network to serve survivors wherever they happen to be. And so you know, that, that requires us to, to fan out. And so wherever your listeners are, if you're an attorney and you're interested in raising your hand, we welcome your correspondence through the website, josephproject.com. 
if you're not an attorney, there are still ways to help. You can share the mission on social media. You can point other people to it. Uh, you, you can give. I mean, and, and it's not it's not all about money, but giving does help. And, uh, you know, what that tells us really is, is that you believe in the mission. You see the need like we do and you believe in the mission enough to give. And that's that's like rocket fuel to us as well. So, you know, in those ways, you can you can really help advance the cause. Yeah. Well, I appreciate having those tangible ways to get involved. And yes, if you are listening, we will put all of this in our show notes. We'll link the website and um, make sure that you have a chance to get plugged in and to help um, spread awareness. It's as simple even as listening to this episode and then passing it along to someone else um, just to have that awareness, especially this month as we conclude um, a time of yeah awareness. And I am just so grateful, Nate, for your um, expertise, your knowledge, the wisdom you shared, how practical and concise you are about um, breaking this down for, you know, I'll just say like common people like me who just have no idea or association with this in my day-to-day life. But you have made it very digestible. And, um, and you've also not made me be like more scared to like, leave my front door. Um, but, but at the same time, there's a level of awareness that I do think needs to, to happen. And so I just appreciate you and what you do and your survivors. Obviously you can pass this along to them. The two women that you shared their stories, um, that is so impactful. And I am just so grateful to be connected with the Joseph project. So thank you for, for being at our table today. It's so great. It's it's great to be at the table and to to extend that space to to other people and especially to survivors and to give them a voice. So thank you for for using your particular megaphone to to shine a light on the problem and to, and to make sure that they have representation in society. We can't forget about them and we want to be their voice. 